Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Masabata, and I'm part of the Nordvik Life Group, and I'll be doing our Bible reading this morning. And it, uh, we'll be reading from Matthew 5, verse 13 to 16, uh, and it reads as follows. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of God. I want you to just join me in a word of prayer before we come to that passage. Heavenly Father, we long to we long to be who we are, who to truly be who we are in Christ. We we thank you for him. As we've been singing, as we've been praying, we've been reminded that by his blood, the son who is a son by nature brought us into the family by grace, that we may now be adopted sons and daughters of the Father. We praise you for that wonderful reality, and we long to live it. And so, Father, please will you uh, disrupt our unhelpful thought patterns and practices this morning. Please will you speak deep into our souls uh, that we might live here, leave here changed people, uh, to live for you and to be useful in your kingdom. Please, Father, don't leave us as we are. And protect us from uh, the evil one who loves to snatch away the word, who loves to distract us with uh, the deceitfulness of wealth, with the troubles of this world. Please, Father, help us to center in on you and give us ears to hear, we pray. Amen. Uh, so if you remember, uh, those of, of you who were with us this time last year, we we did start, we made a start in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, so I'm asking you to dig into the archives. Uh, remember we did that series on the Beatitudes, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and we went through each of the Beatitudes. Please go and listen to those sermons again, uh, not because they were particularly good, but because without an understanding of the Beatitudes, we won't understand the rest of our Lord's sermon. And remember, his sermon spans three chapters in Matthew's Gospel. All of it is built on the foundation of those Beatitudes. So please um, do go and refresh your memory. It's also worth refreshing our memory as to how this sermon came about at all. Have a look at Matthew chapter 5 verse 1. There we read, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, his disciples, saying, at some point early on in his ministry, Jesus notices the crowds. He sees that his ministry is growing. His response is not to try and stir them up and build on the momentum. His response is to withdraw and invest in that core group, his disciples. He wants those who follow him, who truly follow him, to know what they are being called to. Before you take another step in my direction, I want you to know what you're signing up for. 
That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's not just a bunch of rules, not just a series of lectures on ethics. It is more like a manifesto for discipleship. It is a vision of life under the gracious, loving rule of King Jesus. It's a new covenant between God and his people. It's why Jesus goes up on the mountain, why he presents himself as Moses and goes up on the mountain, just like Moses went up on the mountain. He goes up on the mountain to present himself as the true Moses, the real Moses. When we looked at the Beatitudes, one of the first things we noticed was that to be a disciple, to be a citizen in the kingdom, is to be blessed in a particular kind of way. And it's not in the ordinary way. It's not in the way we might think. Life as a disciple is radically different from ordinary life in our society. It is counter-cultural. The disciple is different. By the grace of God, the disciple is different. And therefore, by the grace of God, the disciple must be different. That's the message of the whole Sermon on the Mount. We saw it so clearly in the Beatitudes, and we see it so clearly in our passage today. These verses, bear in mind, they are the very first words that Jesus spoke after the Beatitudes. And the message can be summarized in a single, simple sentence. Here it is. You are different, so be different for the sake of mankind and for the glory of God. Shall I go again? This is our single, simple summary sentence. You are different. So be different for the sake of mankind and for the glory of God. Let's unpack it. Let's break it down. You are different. We can break it down further. You, you are different. There's an extra word in the Greek that makes this emphatic. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. In other words, you, O disciple of Jesus, O citizen of the kingdom, you and you alone are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That speaks to the urgency and the importance of our calling. If it's not disciples of Jesus, it's no one. His disciples are the only hope there is for the world. There is no hope apart from his disciples. Bear in mind who he's talking to. In the first place, he's talking to a handful of Palestinian peasants. They are the light of the world, apparently. They are the only hope. If that doesn't shock you, maybe this will. In the second place, he's talking to us. We are the light of the world. We are the hope of the earth. The only hope. Now, if, if, if that seems hopeless, we'll come back to it. We're still breaking it down. You are different. Once again, just like in the Beatitudes, the first word in this sermon is about being, not doing. 
You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And again, in the Greek, that, that, that verb to be, you are, that verb doesn't need to be there. But it is there. Why is it there? For emphasis. You are. And you are comes before anything you do. What you are depends on what Jesus has already done, not on what you are going to do. If you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, it is because of God's grace. And it has nothing to do with you. You didn't make yourself salt and light. He did. That's why the sermon begins with God's blessing of his people, not with their service to him. First things first. Still breaking it down. You are different. You are the salt and the light of the world. Now what do those metaphors imply about the world? They imply that the world is like rotting meat. They imply that the world is in darkness. The world is rotting. It is prone to corruption, to breakdown, to festering infection. Physically, morally, spiritually, in every way. Salt works in the opposite direction. Salt is different. The world is dark. When it comes to the darkness of the world, there are different shades of black. If light is truth, the world is full of lies. If light is beauty, the world is ugly. If, life, if light is goodness, the world is evil. One of the more modern shades of worldly darkness comes across in a poem written by Robert Frost. You might remember him from high school English. Some of, him, some of us had him as a set work. You remember... Two roads diverged in a wood, and I took the one less traveled. Any takers? All right. Not everybody was banking English. That's good. It's encouraging. Here's another one of his poems. Kind of describes our modern condition. Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near. Between the woods and frozen lake, the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. The woods are lovely, dark and deep. But I have promises to keep and miles to go. Before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. Can you hear the darkness in those words? The rider feels a strong pull into the woods where he will surely freeze to death. The only thing keeping him from going are his social obligations, his promises to keep. In our terms, the rat race, the shopping. The next meeting, the unanswered emails, the complex AGM, the sale at the mall, the extra murals, the bond repayment on the house. There is something deep within the rider that tells him it's all meaningless. 
And he's beginning to listen to that voice. Even his horse is uneasy. We shouldn't be stopping here. This is not a place to stop. But the rider feels the pull of the woods. Those lovely dark and deep woods. The darkness of this modern life is this kind of existential angst, this nagging idea that life is meaningless and then you die. So why wait? Light works in the opposite direction. Light shows us that in Christ there is still truth and beauty and goodness and meaning and purpose. Light is different. You are different. How does that make you feel? I don't know, I think if we're honest, it often makes us feel a little uncomfortable. Often we we catch ourselves falling over ourselves to try and hide our difference. It's why we love the celebrity Christian. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about... Why is it that we so love the celebrity Christian? We get so excited by the celebrity Christian. Well, it's because the celebrity Christian is proof that Christians can also be cool. That we are not so weird. That we're not that different. But Jesus says you are different. And he says you alone are different in a way that can offer the world hope. Again, how does that make you feel? Imagine how that first band of peasants felt, standing on not much of a mountain, somewhere in the armpit of the Roman Empire, being told, you are the hope of the world. I'll be surprised if they didn't have their doubts. Because we have our doubts. And of course, our culture, our society, totally rejects the idea that Christians are the light of the world. They have their own light. We even have a period of history called the Enlightenment when we truly believed that human knowledge was the hope of the world. That light, the light of our own genius, was going to save us. But of course it was snuffed out by the utter darkness of two world wars. And yet we still cling to the crazy idea that human ingenuity is the light of the world. Elon Musk is going to save us. He's going to get us all to Mars. It's going to be fine. What we really need is more Elon Musks. That's what we need. As parents, even as Christian parents, we buy into this madness. We idolize education. We will do just about anything, anything for the best education money can buy. Because that's where the hope really is. You know, we confess that the hope is elsewhere, but functionally, that's where we're putting our eggs, into that basket. Education is the hope, the true hope for our kids, and it's it's the hope of the world. Jesus says, no, 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 you are the hope of the world. You are different. You are different, and so you must be different. Christians are different and Christians are called to be different.
That's the whole message of our passage. In fact, that's the whole message of the Sermon on the Mount. We could go one further and acknowledge it's the whole message of much of the New Testament. Listen to how Paul opens his letter to the Corinthian church. To those who have been made holy in Christ Jesus and are called to be holy, along with everyone else who calls on his name. Along with everyone else who calls on his name. That's every disciple who ever lived. That's us. We've been made holy. We are now called to be holy. We've been made different. We are now called to be different. Jesus goes on in our passage to make the point that to do otherwise, to try and just fit in, to try and cover up our differences is both useless and absurd. Useless and absurd. Look at Matthew 5 verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything. It is useless, except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Salt that isn't salty is useless. In ancient Palestine, salt was mined in the Dead Sea, but it wasn't pure salt. They didn't have the technology for that. There would have been lots of other minerals and sediments and silt mixed in with the salt. And the salt itself could dissolve. It could leach out, leaving nothing but gravel. Now, I'm no foodie. This much I know. When it comes to preserving or seasoning meat, gravel is less than useless. And Jesus warns us, do not be useless. Be what you are. Be different. In fact, to be useful, you have to be different. There's no other way to be useful. Martin Lloyd-Jones has strong words to say on the topic. Let me read them for you. There is nothing in God's universe so utterly useless as a merely formal Christian. Say what you think, Martin. I mean by that, one who has the name but not the quality of a Christian. They are salt without savor, light without light. They are neither one thing nor the other. They are cast out by the world and cast out by the church. We are salt. We must be salty. To be salty in the first place, and there's no escaping this, there's no other way, to be salty in the first place is to be poor in spirit. To recognize we have nothing to offer the Lord. To mourn your sin. To be meek. To be hungry for righteousness. To be peacemaking. Pure. And then also persecuted. To be that and to live like that is to stop the spread of evil and corruption in our world. That's what it means to be salty. And remember, salt bites. Salt is different in striking and sometimes painful ways. If you rub salt into a flesh wound, it will heal, but it's going to hurt first. Hamathilika puts it like this. 
To look at some Christians, one would think that their ambition is to be the honeypot of the world. They sweeten and sugar the bitterness of life with an all-too-easy conception of a loving God. But Jesus, of course, did not say, you are the honey of the world. He said, you are the salt of the earth. Salt bites. And the unadulterated message of the judgment and grace of God has always been a biting thing. He's not saying, go out of your way to be obnoxious. Okay? Some of us have a gift in that area. We need to pull the reins. He's saying that salt often hurts before it brings healing. The gospel and a life shaped by the gospel is offensive. Why? Because it exposes sin. So the world is going to most often react very negatively to your saltiness. But you can face that hostility because it comes with this promise attached. Matthew 5 verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To try and not be different, to try and just fit in is not just useless. It's also absurd. It's mad. Look at verse 14. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. It's load shedding season. We thank God for the temporary suspension. Long may it last. But if, God forbid, it's back with us this coming week and you decide, I I need to stock up on my mag lights, my LED lamps, off you go to builders, you're there, you're looking through the 12-volt LED lamps. The salesman walks over, he says, Sir, this is the one you must have. The Maglite 5,000. 10 million lumens of light. You charge it once a decade. It can cook your breakfast and wash your dishes. You're like, I'm in, I'm in, I'll take five. He says, there's just one thing. There's just one thing I need to tell you, sir. This light only operates when you put it under a bucket. And at that point, you ask for the manager, right? Do you see the madness of not shining your light? Do you see how absurd it is? Do you see the madness of trying not to be different? Of trying to be like the world and just fit in? It's absurd. It's a denial of who you are. It's trying to live a lie. Martin has often shared from this pulpit about a time when he was a young law student and he went through a season of trying to just fit in and not be who he is and not shine his light. I think it lasted about six months and he was utterly miserable. And his light has been shining brightly ever since. Doesn't work. When I was um, working as an economist, I tried to set up a lunchtime Bible study for, for some of my colleagues. So I sent out invites to everybody I thought uh, would be interested. I only got one response saying he was not at all interested. <laughs> His reason, I believe that my faith is a private matter and I want it to stay a private matter. Well, my friends, Jesus would beg to differ. 
He says your faith is never a private matter. It's never a private matter. To try and make it a private matter is both useless and absurd. It's like buying a lamp for load shedding and putting it under a bucket whenever you switch it on. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it plainly. A community of Jesus that seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. And Jesus himself says, you must let your light shine. You must. Let others see your good works. Light or good works is any evidence of a living faith. So if salt stops the spread of evil... Light promotes the spread of truth and beauty and goodness in our world. You let your light shine in word by speaking the truth of the gospel and indeed by living out the gospel life. What did he say? He said they will know you by your love. You are different. So be different for the good of mankind. For the good of mankind. You are different for the sake of others. Stopping the rot in society and promoting the good in society can only be for the benefit of others. We are not just made different from others. I think sometimes we get this wrong. We make a big mistake in this area. We're not just made different from others. We are made different for others. Do you see the difference? And they're worlds apart. We are made different for others. As Tim Keller puts it, and I actually think he borrowed this from John Stott, the church is a counterculture, a counterculture for the common good. The church is a counterculture for the common good. That's what Jesus is calling for. You are different, so be different for the sake of others. Now that can sound incredibly grand. How on earth are we actually going to make a difference in our society? Us. It sounds so pie in the sky. And I think sometimes we must feel, I'm sure there's some of you here this morning, feeling a bit like those Palestinian peasants. A counterculture for the common good sounds so impressive, but it also sounds like an impossible dream. It feels so far beyond us, so overwhelming. And it is. If we think of it as an act of power, power we just don't have. But this isn't a call to exercise power. Jesus knew exactly who he was talking to. He knows what we are. It's not a call to exercise power we just don't have. This is a call to influence. And they're very different. This is a call to influence. Salt, remember, is hardly noticeable. You can't see the salt on your food, but you can taste it. You can't see salt on a piece of meat, but it's the difference between rot or not. When you walk into a room, you don't notice the light, but it's by the light that you see everything else in the room. That's a bit like influence. It's there, it's active, it's making all the difference in the world but you hardly notice it. Let me try and give you an example. Come with me to Romans chapter 16, verse 22. And please do go there because I I need us to read this together. 
So Romans chapter 16 and verse 22. It's helpful to have a few with the old-fashioned Bible because I can hear. I can't hear you scrolling, but I can hear you flipping. All right, verse 22. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. You say, okay. That's a bit obscure. That's exactly the point. This is the nature of influence. Let's read on. Gaius, who is host to me, and the whole church greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cortus greet you. You see it? Maybe not yet. It's like salt on your food. Remember, this is the first century Roman Empire. This is a highly stratified society. There are the most rigid class differences, even more exaggerated than the class differences in our society. 20% of the people were slaves. Slaves were not considered persons. Slaves were property. Slaves were things. Slaves were tools. They were tools. And they were treated like tools. If you were born a slave, your master wouldn't even give you a name. But of course, the master had to be able to differentiate between his tools, so he would number them. Number one, number two, number three, and so on. The person who wrote this letter was a slave called three. Number three. That's what tertius means. Now here is the power of Christian influence. No doubt the Apostle Paul, who had been dictating this letter over a number of hours, perhaps even over the course of a few days, at this point in the letter he pauses and he says to tertius, why don't you greet those you're writing to? He invites him to greet In other words, he treats him like a person, not a tool. He's not just a writing instrument. He's a person. Why don't you greet those? And Paul isn't the only one who treats him like this. Gaius. Gaius, because he he was in a position to host a whole church in his home, he was no doubt a land-owning, what we call paterfamilias. That's what they would have called him in the Roman culture. He's a land-owning head of his family. Gaius was host to number three. Number three was a guest in his house. Guests in that culture were highly, highly honored. So number three had gone from the dishonor of slavery to the honor of being a guest in the home of Gaius, prominent member of the society. Have a look at Erastus. Erastus is the kind of person who would normally be a guest in the household of Gaius. He's treasurer to the whole city. This is a social, economic, political dignitary. This is a VIP. He's just the kind of person who would normally be a guest in the home of Gaius. He's just the kind of person who would normally be served by slaves, tools, like spanners called number one, number two, number three. He's also just the kind of person who would normally never, ever be associated with a slave in any way. And certainly not in a public document. Certainly, he would never normally allow his association with a slave to be put into public record, written public record. But these are not normal people. 
They are different. So here he is, Erastus, the city treasurer, mentioned in the same breath as a slave called number three. And he's not only mentioned with number three, he's also mentioned alongside number four. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cortus greet you. Cortus means number four. He's probably number three's younger brother. But here he is, recognized as our brother. Our brother. So you have Paul, Gaius, Erastus, three and four. They're all brothers. But how? Not by nature. And certainly not by culture. So how? Brothers in the Lord. Tertius sends his greetings in the Lord. In other words, Jesus makes all the difference. He has made them different. And now they are being different. More than that, they are actually, without any intention whatsoever, they are actually being a counterculture for the common good. It's no exaggeration to say that these verses are the seeds of destruction for the institution of slavery in our world. That is no exaggeration. When William Wilberforce and others like him were campaigning to end slavery centuries later, what were they appealing to? They were appealing to ideas that they first encountered in the New Testament. The idea that every human being is made in the image of God and therefore has the status and dignity of personhood. The idea that no person can be treated like a tool. That no person can be considered property. And to do so is actually evil. The beginning of the end of slavery came in this obscure throwaway verse in the fine print, the very end notes of a church letter. Now at this point, when Paul is asking, inviting Tertius to greet the brothers, is he trying to be a counterculture for the common good? Was he trying to bring down the institution of slavery at that point? No. They're just a bunch of guys around a table in a room in Corinth writing to another bunch of guys around a table in a room in Rome. They weren't plotting to take over the world. They were just different. And they were just living out that difference in minute, largely unseen, unnoticeable ways. That's influence. That's what we call to. That's doable, isn't it? And we have so many opportunities. You know, we often bemoan this wicked generation, this dark season in the history of our world. But with the darkness and the rot come so many opportunities to be salt and light. As Dostoevsky said, the darker the night, the brighter the stars. In some ways, being different has never been easier. It's never been easier. You hardly have to try. Every time we as a church are known by our love, we are being different. I've had some wonderful conversations just recently with some people who were visiting and others who are wholeheartedly committed to our church family, both saying, 
they love this church because in their words, we care. And that's you. You care. Because they have seen or experienced genuine love. That's being different for the sake of others. That's the church gathered. But the same is true of the church scattered. Right? Monday through Saturday. You are different. And if you live out that difference in the world, the world will take notice. Every disciple of Jesus who refuses to offer a bribe or to pay a bribe is salt in our society. To choose people over profit. To respond to anger with kindness. To meet a material need. To treat your employees like persons, not property. To tell the truth when a lie would be convenient. Would help you save face. To love an enemy and to actively work for the good of somebody who does not love you. To do a hard, honest day's work when everybody else is cutting corners and knocking off early. Small things. Small things. Seemingly insignificant things. You can't see the salt on your food. But it's making all the difference in the world. That's influence. That's being who you are for the sake of others. But there's, even, there's an even more important purpose to being salt and light in this world. And with this we close. You are different, so be different for the sake of others and for the glory of God. For the glory of God. Look at verse 16. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The purpose of letting your light shine is not to parade your own virtue. Jesus is very clear about that. He is very strong about that later on in the sermon. It is not to parade your own virtue. On the contrary, people are supposed to see your light and want to trace it back to its source, back to its origin. They will see that the works may be yours And the light, in some sense, may be yours, but the glory is God's. In other words, in truth, all light is God's light. Jesus himself says, I am the light of the world. The Apostle Peter reminds us that it is Jesus who called us out of the darkness, Jesus who called us out of the darkness, and into his glorious light. And so, as Paul puts it, we are to shine like stars in the universe. And remember, the darker the night, the brighter the stars. The light that we shine is the light of Christ living in us and with us and through us by His Spirit. We have no light in and of ourselves. None. So any praise, honor, and thanksgiving for the light belong to God. The glory is His. We shine the light, His light, so that people still trapped in darkness can find their way home. My brothers and sisters, the only thing, the only thing that we truly have to offer the world 
is our Lord Jesus Christ. But what a hope he is. Let's pray. Our Father, in Christ you have made us different. Help us, Father, to be different for the good of others and supremely for your glory. We long to truly be salt and light in a dark and decaying world. We long to bless others and to bring you honor. Spirit of God, help us to walk in the light that is our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.